Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. I'm talking coffee with Sabine Parrish today. Sabine, how did your interest in coffee develop? Well, I was being very annoying one summer when I was 16 or 17, and so my parents said, you really ought to get out of the house and get a job. And so I blagged my way into a job at a coffee shop, realized I kind of liked it, uh, but I didn't think of it as a sort of career or anything, just something that was very compatible with you know the hours of university. So I just... You know, I just worked as a barista professionally for a number of years, supported myself through school that way. Then when I came here to do my master's, I originally had an entirely different, very not coffee-related project set up. I wanted to work with informal drinks vendors in Brazil. And at the time, I was working at the coffee shop that's right around the corner from the anthropology department, which no longer has, but did used to have this coffee machine, an espresso machine that was, um, it was, well, it's basically a modern reproduction of a sort of 1920s Italian espresso machine. So what that means it's cylindrical, it's quite tall. Um, and so one day some guy came in to the shop and I was making him his coffee and he just made this like pretty gross crack about, oh, that machine's taller than you. Are you sure you can handle it? And I was just kind of like, uh, it's not the worst thing that anyone has said to me in a service job, but I think just the way that it intersected with technology and my ability to handle you know, technological equipment, I just, it started, I, I started thinking. And that night I went and I phoned up all of my coworkers at the coffee shop. I was the only woman working there at the time. I said, has anyone ever said anything to you about this espresso machine and like your ability to handle it? And everyone said, no. No. And there's a guy who's even shorter than me. And he was like, no, no one's ever said anything. And so that was the nugget, actually, of, of beginning to work academically with coffee, because it occurred to me that hmm, probably there are a lot of other you know, gender differences within coffee spaces. So I turned my academic eye to coffee um, and away from Brazil for a while. I and began to work with uh, basically the intersection of gender and economics in specialty coffee cafe spaces. And specialty coffee is, you know, that high-end, snotty, the hipster coffee, you know, that place. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, looking at something that really builds itself as, um, you know, built upon principles of, of fair trade, direct trade, just trade, and, and taking care of workers along the supply chain, looking at the differences between discourse and and practice, particularly among low-wage service employees. So that's how it started, was just some jerk, but <laughs> here we are. So you came from Seattle, came to Oxford, somebody really annoying came into the coffee shop and stimulated the thought process and got you going. How? What do you find most interesting about coffee? Well... It's, it's hard to say. The, the most interesting, I mean, is, is simply how, not to, I don't want to sound too cliche about it, but it is a product that just connects so many disparate 
areas of the world and has done for so long. So it's it's so interesting to me because it is, you know, it's very culturally and temporally diverse in terms of how people have been using coffee here or there uh, versus now and even even 15 years ago when I started working with coffee. You know, we make coffee in a very different way. We've started to speak about it differently. Then you start placing that on a, a longer time scale and the intersection of, of coffee and empire and colonialism. It, it just comes to, there's just so much in, in such a small little small little cup that I like that you can go almost any any direction with it Probably my supervisor doesn't love that because I'm always going in too many directions. <laughs> yeah, so it's incredibly international, incredibly global, universal, but also extremely local. Can you tell me something about the context in which people drink coffee? Solo? With people? With cake? With a meal? More usually after a meal? At the start of the day? Less so at the end of the day? Can you tell me something about how coffee drinking structures people's um, eating lives, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been very impressed in my myriad coffee travels of actually how different the way, the times that coffee might appear in the day, how, how different that can be, but it does often serve as a you know a sort of punctuation. Um, you're right in saying that it often comes after a meal and but that's, you know, we think about it, oh, coffee after breakfast or with breakfast, and perhaps I'll have one after lunch, and it will, you know, it will carry me through the day, I, you know, and we have a lot of associations of coffee and temporality because, because of its caffeine content, because it can be used, uh, you know, to, to enhance, you know, capitalist productivity in a sense. And that's why we kind of started to institutionalize such things as, as the coffee break, the tea break, uh, you know, the, the proletarian hunger killers to take <laughs> Mince's term, but you know, it, it, we, we're still doing that in, in a sense, but I've been, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes my caffeine intake has been a bit shocked, uh, you know, traveling and, and realizing the different times at which people drink coffee. So I was in, um, I was in South Korea a couple of years ago for some coffee events and I was really surprised to see that except in sort of the kind of financial districts of Seoul, uh, where you're going to, you know, have a lot of people with, you know, okay, I need to be up and alert and trading um, at X hour, uh, coffee shops often didn't open very early in the morning, but then they were just a huge place to go after dinner and, and way into the night. You know, so someone took me into a coffee shop at 10 p.m. And I was like, I'm never going to sleep. <laughs> and I found that to be the case uh, in Brazil as well, not nearly to the same late extent. But when I was doing my research in Brazil, I mean, no coffee shop there would open before 9 a.m. Uh, whereas, you know, in the United States context where I grew up, you know, I, I used to have to wake up for work at, you know, 4, 4.30 in the morning to get to work for 5. So, just having these, you know, the different spaces and the different times in which coffee serves that punctuation, it still very much marks a before or an after meal type of thing. And it kind of links into the structure of people's meals and when they eat, and that kind of links into a whole set of other issues about nutrient timing and when you should be eating what across the day, which is a 
quite a big science. I'm not going to ask you anything questions, any questions about that, but um, it really is a, a structuring device, isn't it? Well, it absolutely is. And then, you know, we, I often talk about just coffee, but it's, it's really quite rare, actually, that we're only talking about coffee. We're probably talking about coffee in conjunction with sugar, with milk, with both, uh, oftentimes perhaps coffee and a biscuit. Uh, you know, it, it's so rarely the coffee itself. So especially when you get into the nutrient timing and, you know, meals and, you know, we, maybe we don't count coffee as a snack. Uh, you know, I spoke to people a lot and they wouldn't necessarily put down coffee in, you know, a food diary or something. Oh, it's coffee. You know, it's kind of nutritionally void. Well, but if you're having your coffee with milk and you're having your coffee with sugar, you know, it, it can um, really change change your levels of everything. I have a younger sister who recently decided to cut down. She, we couldn't be more different in coffee tastes. I just take my coffee black all the time. She goes for the, you know, the Starbucks thing that's, I don't know, got whipped cream or what have you on it. And and she said, oh, I've reduced. Um, I used to have three pumps of a sugar syrup in my coffee, and now I'm only having one. It's like, whoa, that's, that's, I mean, let's set aside nutrition for right now. That's a flavor and sensory difference. That's huge, right? But so many people are having their coffee with three pumps of sugar or two or even one, but it's almost something we could speak about as a different sort of beverage because all of those drinks are going to taste so different. You're not going to have the same experience and you're not going to have the same experience physiologically as well when you drink them. So even within coffee, there's a huge amount of variation just because of the way we tend to adulterate and mix it. Coffee's never simple, is it? No. You've worked on coffee in Brazil. How, how was that? That was great. Um, so I'm still writing everything up, but uh, Brazil is and has been since the 1880s, the world's single largest coffee producing nation. Um, and depending upon the metrics of measurement that you're using, either last year or this coming year, Brazil actually surpassed the United States as the country that consumes the most coffee. Um, and so I, I just found myself sitting in the library a number of times, just sort of stumped because it kept coming up sort of in footnotes, you know, oh, Brazil, world's largest coffee producer, footnote, oh, also consumes a ton of coffee. And so I was like, what? Well, how? And I, I wanted to know more about that. I couldn't, couldn't find the right information about it. So set out to figure that out myself I, and looking at, you know, essentially this is a huge coffee producing nation. What is different in coffee consumption when it is not something that had to come from completely across the world, but is, you know, even if you're in the middle of the city of Sao Paulo, you're potentially only a couple hundred kilometers away from somewhere that's growing really amazing, really quality coffee. You, these sort of direct trade networks can both become you know, much more present. It's, it's easier in a way to get out and, and go see a farm if you have the time and the resources to do that. But then we're also speaking about Brazil, which is a quite stratified and unequal society. So it means a lot of people actually don't have the resources to potentially say, leave Sao Paulo and go to visit a coffee farm that is, you know, a couple of hundred kilometers away. That just might not be in the realm of possibility. So looking at kind of these 
I spent a lot of time looking at these, these conflicting narratives and the difficulties people did have in accessing what was effectively a local good, and then also reflecting on the scales of what we think, you know, of local production. Is it, you know, okay, well, we're not doing the 20 mile, you know, I'm only eating from this 20 mile radius. Well, then you can't have, you can't have coffee at all, you and I would have to give that up, but so would you in most places in Brazil. But it hasn't come necessarily, you know, over, you know, huge distances as well. So it's it's you know more local in a cultural sense. You're doing research into coffee competitions. Can you say something about that? Yeah, that was an outgrowth of my work uh, in the specialty coffee cafes in the United States. And so coffee competitions are a peculiar thing that many people, uh, people tend to laugh when I say I've, I've done research on coffee competitions. And like, what? A coffee competition? What is that? Well, I encourage everybody to run onto YouTube and perhaps type in World Barista Championship and uh, take a look. So in, so coffee competitions uh, are basically there's local and then national level competitions that feed into world competitions. You'll have the baristas championship, uh, brewers cup. So that's for manual hand brewing cup tasters, which is where you receive a series of uh, different coffees and you have to taste and identify them. And there's oh latte art. That's, that's another one. Um, and so I mostly worked with the barista competition, which is the format of that is that the competitor has 15 minutes and they must make three flights of coffees. So you must make an espresso course, a milk beverage course, maximum of 241 milliliters, and a signature beverage, which can must have a dominating flavor of coffee. Uh, coffee must be the primary tasting note, uh, but then the other ingredients, you can use anything that's not alcohol or any other controlled substance. You choose to effectively make a coffee cocktail, sans alcohol, um, that, that reflects the coffee. You have 12 minutes to deliver all these to judges. You have a panel of judges in front of you, sensory judges who are tasting, um, and technical judges who stand behind you and, and figure out. Uh, you know, are you spilling things? Are you weighing things? Are, are you standardized throughout your process? Uh, and so I started looking into how well uh, male and female competitors did in these competitions in the United States, because out of my initial work on the sort of gender differences within the cafe spaces, uh, it became very clear, very early on that women at the very least had a perception that companies were more willing to sponsor uh, their male co-workers to go compete in these competitions because they're very time intensive. They're quite resource intensive. You have to train and train and train. I mean, it's serious business. Um, and so I actually, after I completed this research, I wound up working for the sort of uh, governing body of the competition for a while. So we always joke that I wrote the competition rules. I didn't actually come up with them, but I did put them into that PDF. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then from there, I've also been able to judge um, in a couple of comp coffee competitions. So that actually brings me back to Brazil, where I'm one of the sort of best, you know, really deep dives into ethnographic research I was able to do was actually judge as a sensory judge at the Brazilian barista championship. Um, because it was, it was, it was 
it was phenomenal getting getting to do that because I it was you know I'd been to other competitions while I was there while I was doing my doctoral work in Brazil, but you know watching from the audience, oh that's good and that gives you you know a certain type of perspective. But to be able to sit there to taste the drinks of the competitors and then over the course of the year to follow up with some of these competitors, uh, and then I worked. Um, the the woman who came in second place the following year, uh, she then she then went on to win the competition, and I was able to travel with her to the world championship, work backstage on her prep team, um, and so I was able to travel with the with competitions from Brazil outwards uh, to to the rest of the coffee world. So that was that was a good time, and uh, all I have to say is I probably on my risk assessment should have put, you know, caffeine overdose as a risk. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. And these coffee competitions are clearly global. Um, and Bra- is Brazil the center? No. Uh, Brazil is a really interesting sort of position in that uh, we could call it sort of, you know, it, it has a, it's the supply side hegemon, essentially. Other coffee producing nations essentially need to, in many ways, bend to the will of Brazil because Brazil just produces so much coffee. But the styles and the trends and the the what is good and what is hip in coffee very much is still being set in in places like the United States or London. You know, it's not doesn't tend to be the the power difference is is quite great. So Brazilian coffee actually within specialty coffee is is often looked down upon as a, it really has a history of they they you know prioritized quantity over quality. Now that's really been changing, but there's still a bit of um, in terms of consumer countries, uh, importing countries, still a bit of a stereotype against Brazilian coffee. So Brazil has this kind of just sort of mixed reputation and is really not not the center of of the coffee world in the way that you might might think it is. Now, a couple of years ago, Brazil was able to host some of these world coffee championships and one of the world championships they hosted was the World Brewers Cup, so the the manual hand brewing um so not espresso. And that cough, that championship was won by a competitor from Switzerland, but it was won using a Brazilian coffee. It was won using a Brazilian coffee in Brazil. And I have never heard a group of people celebrate so loudly. And I was standing with some of the farmers who grew the coffee because I'd been able to work with them throughout the whole year. And there's this one one guy, he's sort of their quality control head and you know he, he doesn't speak English. He came from a really rural background and he's just, you know, blessed with this. He's got an amazing mouth. He he can taste and classify. Uh, you know, he's he's just so talented in the sensory world, right? But he never thought he was going to get to see his coffee that he picked be you know, winning on a world stage. And this really tough, really macho Brazilian guy, he just burst into tears. He was so happy. It was just the most amazing thing. And it finally proved, I think, to a lot of people on the international stage that, yeah, okay, we need to be taking Brazilian coffee seriously. And I think I'm, I think I'm still hungover from the celebration for that. 
Can you tell me, do you have any coffee-related projects on the go that you're happy to share? Yeah. So when I am not finishing up my doctorate ever so slowly and I'm not doing my work with you, I am part owner of a coffee shop in Cardiff. We're called Mech Coffee and we're in Castle Arcade. Uh, right in the right in the center of town, up on the balcony. It's a lovely little spot, and it's turning into a cool little foodie hub. We've got a great natural wine bar right across from us. So my current project is just trying to get my coffee shop back on its feet after all of the sort of COVID crisis really forced us to change what we were doing because obviously we were not able to serve customers any longer. And so just stay on the lookout for a much greater um, expansion of our delivery services around the country. Right now, we do free delivery to anyone in Cardiff, uh, which my business partner, Will, has been doing on bicycle. Uh, this was really difficult for him at the very start because when we first started doing it, it was after six weeks of lockdown and he'd just been sitting on his couch. So after um, all the cycling, he was uh, his legs were... Well, they'll be happy in the long run, but he couldn't walk for a couple of days. And so bicycle delivery within Cardiff, and we ship anywhere in the UK right now. And hopefully by next month, that's July, we will um, have a pretty robust web shop and a curated selection. So you can have us ship you coffee on a schedule every two weeks. And so that's kind of the, you know, the big thing is just, you know, being a small business owner, and grappling with with the impacts of the coronavirus shutdown for three months and we only opened last december you know we're we're a baby we'd been open for four months and then had to close so that is my my passion project sabine parish thank you so much for sharing your coffee knowledge you're very welcome thanks for listening the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliazak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.